Michigan's Children proudly presents Speaking for Kids, the podcast where we explore crucial conversations impacting the lives of all Michigan children, youth, and families, especially the most vulnerable. Join us each month as we explore public policies and issues in the best interest of our kids and families. We'll bring you lawmakers and policymakers, advocates fighting for change, and the people most affected by those decisions. With our host, Matt Gillard, president and CEO of Michigan's Children, we'll invite you to become engaged, too, and show you how to take action on what matters most to you. Episodes are recorded live and shared virtually on YouTube and the audio hosting sites, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's Children. I'm Matt Gillard. Uh, your host and the president and CEO of Michigan's Children. In today's episode, we're going to take a look back at what the legislature accomplished for kids and families in 2023 and maybe take a peek into the crystal ball for maybe what should and could get done in the new year. And to help us do that is our guest today, Alethea Kasbin. She's the managing editor of Gongwer News Service. Alethea has been with Gongwer for over 12 years, first as an intern and then as a Capitol reporter covering the House of Representatives for over eight years. Today, she oversees all of Gongwer's news coverage and serves as senior legislative reporter reporter for Gongwer. Alethea, you've had a longer run at the Capitol than a lot of the folks who have been in office uh, during those periods. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. All right. So let's get right into it. So Alethea, from your vantage point, really, what, what do you think the legislature really did deliver on? Obviously, it was a, a new dynamic. I think there was a lot of excitement uh, in, in, you know, interest from from those of us advocates, especially to see what would happen with the first Democratic majority in 40 years with the Democratic governor. And uh, combined with the fact that there was a big state surplus, if you think back to, you know, at this time last year, heading into 2023 with a bunch of federal money still kind of left over from the ARPA funds and, and all this promise and expectation. So what were kind of the overall themes from your standpoint covering this on a daily basis that you saw from the legislature, especially as it relates to the issues that Michigan's Children focuses on? Yeah, I mean, for sure, it was definitely a busy year. Um, you know, even with the legislature leaving a little bit early, they, you know, when they were in, they were in for long, long days with, you know, lots of big ticket items getting done. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, what they did for for children's and families, I think one of the the biggest things from this year and something, you know, Democrats had talked about since, you know, I think 2011 when this happened was expanding the earned income tax credit, which the governor has now decided to call the Working Families Tax Credit, but I think most of us know it as the EITC. It was under former Governor Rick Snyder brought down to, I believe, 6% of the federal credit. It had been 20. They pushed that up to, to 30%, um, you know, in terms of like a long-term issue, something that really gets to, um, you know, lower income working people, usually people with families, you know, that's going to be you know, a big boost, I think, this year. The governor announced yesterday um, that, you know, the 20, you know, this bill didn't get immediate effect for a variety of reasons that I won't get into here. Um, so, you know, people didn't get this expansion in their taxes that they filed last year. So, you know, the people who qualify will get that, get that check outside of their taxes, um, you know, before tax season really goes up this year. So I think that 
you know, it was a big thing. And, um, you know, there were more. I don't know if you want to. Sure. No, well, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Let's dig in a little bit because EITC was, I mean, it is a big accomplishment and and something that, you know, the governor is touting and I think the legislature is touting and, and should be. But it was kind of an interesting issue as well. I mean, it was a bipartisan vote ultimately. And, and in fact, you know, the effort to to expand the EITC or to bring back the EITC actually started with some Republican support, even under the Snyder administration or back or the, at least in the term before, not the Snyder administration necessarily, but in the term before the Democrats took control, Senator Wayne Schmidt at the time was a big champion, Republican from Traverse City. Um, and so, you know, it was, it, it like I said, it was a good thing, something Michigan's children was certainly, you know, out front on and, and very supportive of, but it was a, a bipartisan issue to some extent and had, you know, fairly broad business community support and other things that you see typical from the Republican side. Um, the other interesting part of that that you hinted at, and this was kind of a theme, I think, throughout the year, was the immediate effect and the challenges with getting immediate effect on some of these measures that ultimately led the legislature to end session early in November. And we don't need to get too far into the weeds on that. Uh, we'll spare our listeners <laughs> that, that kind of legislative sausage grinder. Uh, details, but but the EITC kind of stood out both, I think, as one of the big things that happened, but also the fact that it, you know, had some at least bipartisan appeal to it, where a lot of the other things, you know, it, it seemed like the wheels kind of fell off that bipartisan bus, maybe mm -hmm. after the EITC went through. What are you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think the EITC is a really interesting issue when you talk about, you know, bipartisanship, because it, you know, it did, it was slashed under, you know, Republican control, a lot of Republican legislators, who voted, you know, to decrease the EITC eventually were like, you know, we never, we, we do support raising it back up. You know, we did this because of the, you know, the budget situation at the time. And, you know, we had to make some difficult decisions. Um, so even Republicans who voted for it were like, yes, now the state is in a better position. We need to get this, you know, back to where it was and, and then some. Um, but because the way that they package this bill and the way politics works, they put the EITC in a larger bill that included several other things that Republicans, um, you know, couldn't get on board with. So it didn't get really a lot. It didn't the bipartisan the vote didn't really reflect the bipartisanship that you know was behind the EITC, which is interesting, um, and that led for it to you know not have immediate effect. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so, yeah, well, it is an interesting issue. And so now, now, you know, what we find from an advocacy perspective, a lot of people want to look back and say, well, how come, you know, let's let's recreate this coalition that was built around the EITC and, and you know, to, to pass what it is we want to do next. And we, I kind of find myself in an area where I'm, you know, warning people, listen, the EITC was a different issue because yeah. there was kind of broader political appeal for that specifically. Uh, because, you know, the business community in general likes tax credits, especially working people tax credits in, in that regard. And so, um, you know, that's interesting. I think the other big theme from our standpoint, at least early on, if you look back to early in, in 2023, was really the governor's leading focus and then getting the legislature to follow on on pushing a big chunks of money into this economic development idea and chasing these big SOAR projects. And, mm -hmm. and now we're seeing some of that play out, uh, you know, in not such a great way with Ford talking about scaling back and, and local opposition in these communities, the significant local opposition to some of these projects and, and other things. And I know that was frustrating for us and, and for a lot of other advocates as well. When, you know, we saw this big opportunity of, of the state having surplus resources, but most of it being directed to the big corporate 
corporate projects. Um, talk about that and how that dynamic played out a little bit, maybe from your end. Yeah, I think you know the the economic development issue. Like you could, you really see a lot of tension in the Democratic Party over that. You know, there is a split. Um, you know, among sort of the, I would say it's like a spectrum of how supportive people are for economic development, what they think, you know, projects should focus on, you know, but at the end of the day, I think if you have companies like, especially like Ford, um, which you mentioned, that, you know, are here trying to, you know, launch bigger projects in the state as a state lawmaker, as, you know, the, the someone of the governor's party, like there's a lot of pressure, you know, to to help those projects move along and, and, you know, get new jobs in the state. So we saw, you know, actually with the EITC bill, um, you know, some automatic direction of corporate income taxes to this big SOAR fund, uh, which is, you know, the the main driver for these really large projects. Uh, but it's, you know, been a bumpy road. That bill was was difficult to pass. There was one, like, very strong Democratic holdout who has not voted for anything um, to that level of economic development and hasn't budged. So, you know, the governor almost didn't get, you know, that main thing she did want. And then, like you mentioned, there's the local opposition in some of these areas. You know, this is where politics sort of comes into play again. You saw it in 2022. You know, there was a lot of Republican focus on, you know, if some of these battery companies have ties to the Chinese Communist Party. You know, are we giving, you know, our land to China? You know, these things that are happening and it's really sparking some pretty vocal and, you know, strong local opposition. We've seen the township board um, recalled over things like this. And then because with the UAW strike happening, Ford says, you know, one of the most controversial projects we've had this year, Ford says, well, we might not, you know, do the project to the level that we received, you know, this huge, um, you know, benefit incentive from the state for. Now we're thinking we're going to scale this back, pointing, you know, to the strike as one of the main reasons EVs not doing, you know, as well um, as originally expected. So it's certainly economic development this year. I think the governor got some wins on paper, but it, you know, it was a bumpier road than I think she was expecting, certainly. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that last point you made is really the key. I mean, the strike was, was a, you know, a, obviously a big issue that happened here, but the reality is people aren't buying the EVs, right, to what everyone expected. And so, uh, you know, we we raced into this, the governor and, and got the legislature to go along racing in that we got to be out front and this is the future, this is the future. Now the, the global economy seems to be saying, well, maybe not, maybe not so fast. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting. And I think you're right. I mean, what, you know, the, the I don't want to say chasm, but the divide within the Democratic caucus, you know, there was a lot of talk early on from Democrats about how this wasn't the approach they wanted to take. But ultimately, all of them, other than Representative Wegela, went along. Right. And, yeah. and you know, she got them in line. Now they're all saying, see, I didn't want to do this and saying, you know, or there's a there's a faction, I guess, at least that's saying, we need to take a different approach. It'll be interesting moving forward. Now, you know, I don't want so so it seems like we focused on some of the challenges <laughs> right away. There were some good things, you know. Certainly, we saw, especially when we, in terms of the budget, you know, we saw some big investments in in after school. Um, the free school meals seems to be was a big big focus of ours at Michigan's Children. Um, and I was just on a call last week. Seems to be working out even better than people expected. Uh, and I think is something that we'll really be able to build on. Um, 
you know, and uh, we had some increased money for uh, adult ed and other areas. Um, so there were some certainly some good things in the budget. You know, we certainly, I think, you know, tend to focus on those issues that we didn't get as much play on. One issue in particular where we seem like we struggled um, and are kind of frustrated as to why is around child care. Um, you know, child care is a big issue here. Every basically everybody across the political spectrum when they're running for office talk about child care because they hear about it from their constituents in their communities. Um, but you know, we have not done a great job as a state in addressing that and really focusing or prioritizing investment and resources into child care. So there was a big one of the big issues in child care this year was what we we did a spent a lot of energy bringing attention to what we called the child care cliff. And this was really the federal money. So the federal government did a really good job of increasing significantly investments in child care through the pandemic. And as those monies were about to expire, and those monies go to the state to support child care efforts at the state level, everyone knew that this cliff was coming and that and the federal dollars were going to run out. And we were really pushing the state to, to offset some of this cliff by investing state resources into our child care system. And as near as we can tell, as far as we can tell, we're the only state in the country with democratic control, meaning a democratically controlled legislature and democratic governor that did not address or, or you know put state resources in to offset the impact of the cliff. Um, and so that's one area in particular that we're you know really going to push forward on into 2024. What do you, you know, what kind of from the, you know, there's obviously a lot going on in the, in the legislature at all times, but what do you, what do you owe that to? What do you think from your perspective? Why does child care not seem to, you know, on the campaign trail and in, in, in media bites, you hear the legislators talking about it, but it doesn't seem to resonate when it ultimately comes to, to making the decisions. Yeah, I think, you know, child care is just, it just takes so much money, I think, is really the bottom line. I think if you were really going to solve the issue that people have with childcare, which is they can't really afford it, um, they or they can't find it, um, there aren't enough providers, the providers they can find are too expensive, it's hard to keep staff, especially, you know, a lot of these facilities might pay, you know, 12 or $13 an hour. And we're still in an era where you could go, you know, work at a fast food restaurant, work at a retail location and make more um, than potentially what you could make, you know, in a childcare facility, which might be, you know, harder work. So I think that it's a very overwhelming issue. I think it would take a lot of money to sort of subsidize. And I think that's where you see I think that is probably the answer to the question. And that's why you kind of see it not being solved because that is a difficult thing to do politically. I mean, certainly they've done some things, right? Like the governor has this, you know, tri-share program. You know, I think this is pretty limited in scope, but in certain areas with certain employers, you know, the state, the county, you know, and the employer splitting costs for childcare. You're seeing the great start readiness expansion. So the governor wants you know, universal preschool for all four-year-olds, which certainly would cut off a year of, you know, necessary childcare payments that someone might have to make. So you're seeing these smaller sort of incremental steps, but, you know, the bottom line is, you know, most families need childcare starting at six to 12 weeks until, you know, the child is four or five. Um, and that could take, you know, I don't think the state could do it on its own. Um, but it would certainly take billions from the state and potentially, you know, billions from the federal government to actually get to solve, you know, a child care issue for families. 
Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that, you know, the the issue is overwhelming and you hinted at a lot of the components of it and the workforce is a big piece of it. Um, but, you know, we think there are some opportunities for some solutions. But but I think, I mean, in, in the big picture standpoint, I think you're right. I think Governor Whitmer is probably more like 49 other governors in the country that are hoping and praying that the federal government will step in and really address this issue. Uh, and we're, you know, and there was certainly efforts that we're a part of with our partners nationally at the federal level and partners from other states and trying to get those increased investments that we saw through the pandemic, you know, continued. But I mean, we complain about Lansing. Washington's an absolute mess right now <laughs> at the legislative level, <laughs> certainly. So we don't see any real path for, for uh, you know, that to happen anytime soon in Washington. And so we're going to continue to try to push uh, for this to become a bigger priority at the state level. But you're right. I mean, this is it's a big issue, but one that we think that uh, more can be done on and, and it's going to take everybody committing to it to make it happen. Um, all right, one other issue that, you know, got a lot of attention this fall, uh, and we really see a, a, a really growing and, and expanding advocacy effort around in a big coalition that we're a part of and helping to lead uh, growing around is the paid family and medical leave. And this is something the governor, the governor had kind of an interesting speech in, in, I can't remember, I think it was in September, maybe August or September, where she kind of laid out her priorities for the fall after the budget was done. Um, and called on the legislature to do some stuff. And this, you know, got a lot of people's attention, certainly was uh, uh, interesting to us and, and a lot of other the, our advocacy partners, um, but didn't seem to get, you know, there's some movement in the, in the legislature and certainly some champions emerging in the legislature, but didn't really, uh, you know, get any real momentum uh, during that shortened fall legislative session. But this effort is going to continue into 2024. What do you, what are you hearing, or what's kind of the inside word on on paid leave um, from inside the Capitol? Yeah, so the governor, you know, called for this. You're right at the end of end of August before the legislature, you know, came back in the fall, sort of set the tone for you know what she wanted to see done next. So this paid family leave proposal, you know, could be used to take care of um, like an elderly family member or a sick family member, or you know, it could be sort of a you know maternity or paternity leave. Uh, paid up to a certain amount. The details were very scarce. Um, the governor didn't provide many. She kind of kicked this out and said, let's figure it out. Um, so there were a couple bills already in the legislature, in the House and Senate. And goes Senator Geis, um, and I don't recall who had it in the House. And, you know, they were 12 weeks, um, you know, but it really didn't get a ton. I think, you know, most Democrats, including leadership, you know, sort of support this on the surface level, right? Like you ask them about it and they're like, this is a good idea. This could help the state. This could help a lot of families. I think, again, like so many things, the bottom line comes down to how, like, how would it work? How would the state pay for this? And this is where you see a lot of businesses sort of and business groups like balking at this whole idea, really trying to put a pin in it as, you know, a um, you know, an actual policy that could, you know, become law. I think in, in Minnesota, Minnesota recently did this and it was, you know, it's something like, I believe a payroll tax that's kind of used to to pay for that. Um, that's sort of the expectation of what would happen here if Democrats really started, you know, to move this in earnest. But I think, you know, this would be a hard, uh, hard vote to do, hard policy to do before the election, potentially. You know, we have the House, um, up for election this year. They have 56, very tight majority. They, you know, 
that's going to be a main goal of the governor and House Speaker Tate is going to be keeping all 56 of those members. So to a certain extent, they're going to have to make a decision on is this a winning issue for our vulnerable members if we do something like this and businesses are out there saying, no, this is bad, small businesses are going to close, um, you know, or can we win on this because it is something that, you know, will help you know, everyday people if something like this were to pass. I think that's probably what people are grappling with. I don't know what answer they've come up with, but we certainly haven't seen, you know, a huge push to pass this so far. So that might, you know, give us our our answer on what it will look like next year. I think you're, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, we have these conversations with this coalition of, of advocates supporting this. And I think you've nailed it right on the head. I mean, this is, I think there's this notion or there's this nervousness from from legislative leadership, particularly in the House, who are heading into an election, that hey, let's just not rock the boat. If Trump's at the top of the ticket, we're going to slide through. Let's just go. And what we're trying to get them to understand is this is a winning issue, that this is something they should be campaigning on. If I'm running, you know, for re-election as a House Democrat in a in a marginal seat or a vulnerable seat, I want to be able to say I did this and I passed this. I mean, this issue polls at over eighty percent anywhere here in Michigan and anywhere in the country. It's wildly popular across the political spectrum uh, with voters and with people who would benefit from this policy. Um, but the opposition is real. I mean, the 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 formal, I mean the business, the the ent political entities that that engage in political campaigns and fund campaigns for and against candidates uh on you know on the right especially are very engaged on this. And it it will be fascinating to watch, but I don't think the issue is going away. I think, yeah, Minnesota, I think, was the 11th state. There's a number of other states that are considering right now. This is not something that people are just going to be able to to continuously walk away from. And we're going to continue to build on and, and push the effort forward. But it is a, even just, a, you know, Michigan's children and our well, we we the fact that we think this would be great for kids and families aside, just from a pure political context, this will be a fascinating one to watch and to see. So, I mean, the other thing, so I could just add just really quickly, I just have another thought that, you know, if you're talking about the governor who's nearing, you know, she's kind of going into the second half almost of her term. If you're talking about a legacy for a Democratic governor who has really kind of uh, encompassed the Democratic Party nationally, right? Like she's gotten so much focus. You know, I can't imagine she's going to lay off this issue, whether it's something that comes up in lame duck. But, you know, I think she wants to have a big policy like this when she leaves office. If she can sort of steer the legislature to doing something kind of this impactful that really would touch, you know, so many families that don't have access to something like this right now. I do think that has to be something that she's interested in and carrying on when she does leave office. So I, I feel like I she'll make a big push, but we'll see. I hope you're right. I hope you're right, because I would counter that to a little bit effect with, uh, with the I mean, this governor has been very friendly to business. Yeah. As true. a Democratic governor, she's been very friendly to business and business interests throughout her tenure. And so this would be really the first that I can recall in a big way of, you know, going counter to that or, or really taking them on because the business community at large in in general is going to be opposed to this there's yeah. no there's no middle ground for them on this there's no getting them to neutral <laughs> on this type of an issue yeah. uh and having it be effective in any way shape or form I mean, you'll lose the advocates if you if you give in to what you know the business community would want to to get to neutral so this would be the first i think and i hope you're right and, and i think it makes sense from a legacy standpoint but this would be the first uh 
real effort at, at going getting crosswise with the yeah. the traditional business interests in the state. Um, so that's another reason why I think it'll be fascinating to watch. So we, we talked about the politics. So let's let's dig into that a little bit here before we close out. So, uh, you know, that, yeah, with, with narrow majorities in both the House and the Senate, the Senate not up. Yeah, for election. So we come back with the same, you know, Senate makeup, same, same issue there, but the House up for election encounter and, and combine that with the fact that we're really starting the year at 5454, with two House members having recently been elected to, to local mayorships uh, in their communities, but those seats expected to be filled by Democrats by April or whenever the, the special date has been set here uh, for the elections. But what do you think? I mean, Talk to a little bit about that and how that is going to impact both the narrow majorities as they are, and then the fact that the House is heading into this this uh, election going to impact things heading into 2024. Yeah, I think we're going to likely see a pretty slow couple of months. Um, you know, I think with the House at at 54-54, the Democrats need you know at least one Republican to vote yes to pass anything. Um, and you're going to see, you know, what how the Republican leadership handles this. Are they are the Democrats able to peel off one or two votes? Are they going to Republicans just going to stay united? No, on everything. You know, I think there's going to be a political question there for Republicans to answer in the House of like, is it better for us just to block everything, or you know, how much can we really get from the Democrats on certain proposals, or you know, are they just going to wait us out? So the both seats that are up for a special election are safe Dem seats. So a Dem's going to win, but that election isn't until April 16th. Um, so they won't be back at 56 until then. Um, you know, certainly Democrats can get a lot of things ready to go. They can talk about the budget, but, you know, it's going to be hard to pass. You know, certainly anything that is a strong Democratic priority, you might see some cats and dogs, like just smaller kind of things move through that can get 100 or so votes. Um, but anything controversial, likely off the table, and you know, maybe even anything even slightly <laughs> controversial might be off the table too, depending on how Republicans want to play their hand here. Yeah, and the interesting thing too is kind of through a quirk in the rules that we don't really have a shared power dynamic even for these first few months because it is fifty four fifty four, right? If it was fifty five fifty five they'd have to restructure committees and everything else. So that yeah. actually helps the Democrats enable to maintain their committee structure. So, I mean, one scenario is we could really just see a bottleneck on the House floor, right? Where we could yeah. see things continue to move through the Senate, even move through committee on the House side, but then just kind of get bottlenecked on the House floor until they're able to get these new members seated um, and push through. But that, I mean, the interesting part about that is, and so then, I mean, what, what most people would view as those would be somewhat controversial issues that are going to be party line votes. Well, then you got them all teed up even closer to the election, right? When these new members, these two poor new two new people that just got elected, uh, you know, their first week are going to be voting on on yep. fifty things that are party line votes right off the bat. That's not always the the, <laughs> the best case scenario as a new yeah. member, and and so that's an interesting, I think, to see how that plays out is going to be fascinating as well. Yeah, no, I agree. I think as soon as they're in, they're I mean, and they'll win like their primaries at the end of January, so I imagine the House Democratic leadership will be like, okay, now you need to you need to learn everything now. You're not waiting until <laughs> April. Yeah. Like the yeah. day that you win, like you, you know, as soon as that election is certified, you are on the floor and we are, you know, starting marathon sessions. But like you mentioned, because it is an election year, usually, you know, the House is not in very much in the summer. And then in the fall, it's very slow. 
you know, we might see another kind of change in the schedule um, and how it would traditionally work because they are likely going to have to wait four months to really get going. Um, so the summer, the fall might be a little bit busier for an election year than what we've seen in the past. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Never a dull moment, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you. Well, that's that. That's all we have time for today. I want to thank Alethea for this great conversation. We really appreciate you making the time uh, around your work and holiday schedule to, to join us and to help our listeners kind of understand the ins and outs of what happened here in 2023 and what we can expect moving forward. To you and our listeners out there, happy holidays, peace, and good wishes to all of you. Until next time, I'm Matt Gillard, and this is Speaking for Kids. Find out more about this program and others by visiting our website at michiganschildren.org. And don't forget to sign up for our bulletin when you get there. Thanks. You've been listening to Speaking for Kids, the podcast for Michigan's children with host Matt Gillard. Thanks for joining us. To explore these and other issues relevant to our state's children, youth, and families, and to build your advocacy muscle, go to our website at www.michiganschildren.org. You'll find links and news about past and future podcast topics under our resource tab and action alerts under the Take Action tab. Find and like us on Facebook and Twitter. Terry Bannis and Stephen Wallace produced this podcast. Contact them with your questions and ideas for other topics. Michigan's Children is a nonprofit advocacy organization, an independent voice working to reduce disparities in child outcomes from cradle to career through policy change.